Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, thanks for tuning in to FBI Radio 94.5. This is Out of the Box. It's the place where every Thursday from 12 to 1, I sit down with one person and their record collection and look at some of the stories and songs from their life. We're broadcasting from the FBI studio in Redfern, which means we're coming to you from unceded land belonging to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I want to take this moment to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any First Nations person listening right now. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today's guest is no stranger to our airwaves. You have absolutely heard his voice before. Tasman Keith is a Goombanger rapper from Barraville who now calls Sydney home. And we're very lucky that he found time to come into the station today. He's about to release his debut album, A Colour Undone, and he will headline FBI Smacks Fest tomorrow. But before all of that, we're going to take a walk through the very big chronology of Tasman's very young life and stop to listen to the tracks that have defined the big moments. Tasman, thanks so much for joining me today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So I think a big part of your music and something that you always visit is your early life on the mission. Can you paint a picture of that for me? Yeah. So basically, um, I come from a small town called Barrowville in the mid-north coast, uh, just maybe like 40 minutes from Coffs Harbour. Um, and if you're familiar with that area, it's like 10 minutes inland from Nambaka Heads. Um, so basically, the way that town is still set up in a way is that there's the township, then uh, 500 metres up the road is the mission, um, and which was used as a form of segregation. Um, and over time, we've like reclaimed that space, and it's now something we take pride in, um, and a place where you know a majority of my family live. Um, and growing up there was really just... It was always in between there and Sydney, um, but it was always a sense of community, regardless of anything, and just a quite a safe space um, for me to grow up as a, as a young kid with with my older brother. And so, basically, when I when I think back to those times, it's really just like one of the most comfortable places I have been in in that time of my life. Was there any kind of physical boundary separating the mission from Bowerville? Um, not as I was growing up. Um, of course, there was, you know, behind closed doors racism and mm. also outspoken racism. Um, but, you know, earlier there definitely was. Like my my great-grandmother wasn't allowed to, to walk downtown without a ticket saying she could be downtown or, you know, blackfellas had to sit at the right at the front of the, the theatre um, and have to, like, literally bend their necks back to see the film. Um, and I understand that, you know, when I grew up in that town and the difference of when my, you know, older relatives grew up in that town. And so, therefore, I know how lucky and blessed I am in comparison. I don't know. It's, I understand that it's a community and obviously a community spirit would be fostered from that. But the things you're telling me aren't pleasant. And mm. I'm wondering how you've been able to spin that into something that's been quite positive for you. I think it was always, of course, there was, you know, it wasn't always pleasant. Um, and it's always this thing that's underlying and things that still need to be fixed. But for me, I always saw the beauty in what we have there. Um, and 
and mainly just being able to to be around family um, at that extent. So I think for me, it wasn't something I tried to set out to do. I just kind of naturally I see myself right now in the time that I'm in um, as as a young Indigenous man, being very blessed in comparison to my great grandmother. There's definitely still things that you know are in my way, obstacles and hurdles and, and stuff like that. But I'm also aware that there is you know a change that's slowly happening. So I don't tend to necessarily look back on what isn't my trauma because that's what my father my grandfather always said is like don't carry our trauma like mm. you know live your life and right now we are looking at the mission outside Bowerville I want to zoom in more to your family home mm-hmm. what did it look like and what was your family shaped like damn we was in many <laughs> different houses um there was one on dot I close which is at the end of the mission just like you know classic uh regional town house fireplace there was a massive bushland across the road and my uncle used to fix cars over there so we'd go play guns mm-hmm. and stuff like that there um there's there's another house that's then in sydney in granville which i don't really remember um there's also like halfway houses in between that you know mum had to put us in and live with, with us while we were super broke and and moving around and trying to navigate moving to sydney from barville and then there was like you know moving back to barville the house was in the main street so we were more uptown, um, and that was very much, you know, three bedrooms with me, my brother, my little sister, my mum, my dad, and two dogs. Um, and so there's been a lot of different, you know, houses or, or spaces where I've felt at home over the years. What were your parents doing for work when you were little? Um, I can't exactly remember what mum was doing. She had a few different jobs um, over time, but I do remember that there was a point in time when her and my dad split up because they split for seven years while dad was here in Sydney, but we moved to Sydney so we could still be around him. Um, because one thing that mum and dad always did well was make sure, you know, we still had our family. Um, but I remember when I went to, I was going to Darlington Primary and I would wake up, mum would take us to school, drop us off at 8.30, she'd leave, then she'd go straight to work She'd work until like maybe four, three thirty four, mm. and so she would she would meet us at home, or she'd pick us up, and then she would drop us off, feed us, have dinner, like have dinner with us really quick, and then go to another job that started at like ten, and work until four a.m. and then you know came home, got three hours sleep, and just was doing that for a cycle for a while, um, and Dad was just really working as you know a struggling musician in the time. Um, and doing workshops here and there, so it was a it was a tricky balance. I think it's so easy um, when you read about Tasman Keith. People always talk about your dad and the kind of lessons that might have been imparted on you from him being a musician. But your mum works mm. so hard, and mm-hmm. you grind so hard. Yeah, I get that from my mum for <laughs> yeah. sure. And like my mother and father will say the exact same thing. I get my my work ethic is definitely from my mum. But. Even with that in mind, I do just want to touch on what it means to grow up with a practicing musician in the house. You yourself have gone on to pursue music. What kind of lessons do you think your dad taught you? I think it was just a natural impact because um, mum was a singer as well and she was a musician in her own right. She just kind of had to give up her dreams because she had um, my older brother and me at the age of I think like 20, 21. Um, so she kind of just put all that to the side and, and raised us. Um, but growing up with, with them two as you know musicians and lovers of music and 
my uncles who are just natural musicians and can play guitar. Um, it was really just a natural progression and inspiration of like, there was never a point where I felt forced to do what I do or that I needed to do music because other people in the household did it. It was just like the the love I found for it outside of my family, like to my own and then inside of my family as well. Um, really just impacted me and still does this day. Like I remember going to dad's on the weekend and he would have us every second weekend um, and he'd have to do a show as well. But he had us kids, so the the, the balance was, okay, well, I just got to put the kids on stage and we'd get on stage with him. And so, really? yeah, he'd just put us on stage. What were you doing, dancing or anything? Rapping. Really? Yeah, yep. Like eight, nine, ten years old. Do um, any videos of that still exist? I think there's photos. I've got, I got to check those videos. It's definitely photos. Um, but I remember standing on stage and just being super shy like my head was staring at the ground my arms were like you know both both hands were holding the mic and just sh- not really shaking but just quite nervous but I remember always rapping and I remember actually the first time I got up with dad was at powerhouse museum I can't remember what it was for but I got asked to get up and I just freestyled and I think I was like 10 and I freestyled and I felt so good after that shit I was like yeah you're joking and I, like that was the <laughs> moment where I was like okay Hectic. This feels great. I suppose you would have just had such a rare insight into what it means to be a full-time musician as well. Mm-hmm. What did you take away from that? Um, just that, like, you really have to work. And I remember, you know, some weeks Dad would be super broke and would have to buy black and gold ice cream and black and gold chocolate and <laughs> chop the chocolate up, put it into the ice cream so we have chocolate chip <laughs> ice cream. You know what I mean? Like, really that side of it and I remember when dad would get paid from a great show or a workshop and then he would spoil us so like it was definitely I guess seeing um you know the work it takes and kind of how unreliable it can be for for a moment and for a while too if you if you never break through um so I think it was mainly that and just learning that like dad my mom and my uncles were always just doing it out of love regardless and would you know make ends meet by any means and still want to do music for the next hour Tasman we are going to walk through the chronology of your very big life mm-hmm. and look at all these moments that have made you the musician you are now because I'm sure there are so many things outside of just your parents being musicians first we're going to jump into a song though mm-hmm. what's the first one you've picked I've got Michael Jackson's <laughs> remember the time because I I was you know as as well as rapping on stage with my father, I was also watching uh we had a we had a tape and it was just all of MJ's videos and you know, there's songs like The Way You Make Me Feel and all the classics, but I remember this video stuck with me and we'd have uh I'd have like birthday parties and sleepovers and we would all just be practicing the exact same dance moves as MJ. So that's the first joint.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the podcast or on the website, fbiradio.com. That was Michael Jackson. The song was called Remember the Time, and it was chosen by another artist who I have on the show today with me, Tasman Keith. And we did just roll through your early life, Tasman, and what it meant for you to grow up with so many musicians around you. I guess I'm wondering when you first started to think about music in a meaningful way or when music started to look like something that could be more than just a hobby or a pastime for you? Um, I think it was, yeah, it's tricky because I've always been around it. Um, But I think the really, it depends, like the really defining moment for me was like when I was 14, I moved back to Barrowville um, and I would, I was in between playing rugby league and and making music um, and there was somebody back in Barrowville that was a really close friend at the time and his name was Zach um, and he was somebody that really you know made sure I was in the studio every day with him the studio being a small room called the DigiHub <laughs> um, in which four to six of us cousins were sitting there and it's tiny um, and just rap over like Lil Wayne instrumentals or like free YouTube beats and just or produce our own and really honing on the craft. So I think at 14 um, was when I knew I wanted to do it and the importance of it purely being for self-expression. Um, but other than that, I think I've always seen it as important, whether, whether it's like year seven, I'm in a breakup, I play Neo, you know what I mean? <laughs> like it just depends on what time in the life it was. But it was always like important and evident how important it was to me. So it's very much uh, family supporting your music, then it's happening in the household, it's happening at this recording studio with Zach. Mm. What about at school? Was there any avenue for musical expression there? School was Talent Quest. Um, yeah. Yeah, and that's when I would do, like, I remember Year 6 Talent Quest, I did, uh, again, lip sync, you know, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, that was my first performance before <laughs> rapping at Powerhouse. Um, and then I, I, got, <laughs> I got to Year 6 and... I had a girlfriend at the time and uh, I remember we had a Jackson 5 tape and I think I'll Be There was one of the songs and I remember like pressing play and pause every time I had to write a new lyric, learnt the lyrics, went to Talent Quest, sung the song. Got, as soon as I got on stage, I don't remember. like from, Even now in my life, I remember walking up on that stage in year six. I don't remember the next three minutes and I remember walking off. But I knew that I sung the song for her. Um, so it's always been like something that's around in some way. And then, you know, you fast forward to high school and I kind of took a break from it in year seven and eight. Um, I think because I was just like, you know, trying to figure out what I wanted to put my energy into. So it was rugby league at the time. And then when I went back to Barrowville, it was, you know, small town. The things we had there was called music and meal nights. Um, where they'd put on a dinner and people that wanted to showcase music showcase it. I would rap, do that stuff there. But then when I got to year 11 and 12, um, music wasn't provided as a subject. They asked me and the rest of my year group, mind you, in Barrowville Central High School, like this is a year 11 and 12 was six people. So yeah, only like me and my cousin wanted to do music and they were like, look, unfortunately we can't do that. It's not enough. We can't fund it or that. Um, but that's so, a third of the year wanting to do music. <laughs> yeah, yep, but instead I had to set up a food tech. But that was when school kind of, you know, I couldn't do it then, but I was still performing. And by then I knew what I wanted to do, so it was fine. And so knowing that you wanted to do, what did that mean when you finished? 
Um, it just mainly meant like figuring out, okay, um, how do I do this? And the the years after high school was just, I guess, honing in on my craft. You did study for a little bit after mm-hmm. school, didn't you? Yeah, I studied. I went to the Australian Institute of Music for one month, went to two <laughs> classes, and I was like, I'm out. I, you know, people that, you know, go, especially that school or that institute, I, I get it. But for me personally, I didn't agree with it, um, with some of the things they were pushing. I kind of, I, I saw it early on that I was like, if I stay here, it's going to kill my creativity because I'm not enjoying music. I'm just learning it. Um, and so I dipped. And then I, yeah, went back to Barrel for a bit, worked there. Um, well, let's let's okay. talk about that working because uh-huh. <laughs> I don't think when people think of Tasman Keith, they imagine you in high vis, but that certainly was, was something Steel that you... Steel cap boots. Well, for fruit of your life. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing? Um, I was working at the Aboriginal Land Council and I was mainly just like fixing fences working on farms, mowing lawns, cleaning houses, just everything and anything that fell under council, I was doing. Hell yeah. What did you learn from that? That I didn't want to do that. <laughs> like, I wanted music to work. I was like, I can't do this. Um, but I also just like, I don't know, I, I enjoyed being, you know, outside throughout the day and then working, like doing something hands-on and just being out and about. I think it helped me separate music for a bit. Um, and even before that, I, I went back and worked at, you know, my high school um, as a teacher's aide and worked at my little sister's primary school as a teacher's aide. So when I got back overall, I think over the span of two years, I was either working at the council or before that I was working at uh, two schools at once and just making making whatever work. You're probably so much more grown up when you come back to Sydney after having spent, mm-hmm. you know, two years out working like that. Yeah. You've chosen a Drake song to play next, mm-hmm. Tasman. Why did you pick this one? Because I remember when I first got my red peas uh, and I would drive my mum's station wagon and she'd call me and my two cousins the Night Riders because we'd leave <laughs> at like 8 at night and get back at 5am um, doing, you know, what young boys do and just going out and, and having fun and, and me getting my license. I was like, all right, let's go. And I remember this is the song that I'd play and we'd all be in the car like, yep. All right, cool. And and mind you, a night out in their bucket heads is us just driving around till 5 a.m. and then McDonald's open and we get breakfast and then we go home <laughs> or just like go to the beach and chill. It ain't nothing. There's no clubs. It's just like the club is in the car and we're just doing that. <laughs> well, the club is in everyone's car now. It is. Hold on, we're going home by Drake on FBI Radio 94.5, chosen by night rider Tasman Keith. <laughs> Hold on, we're going home. It was Drake on FBI Radio 94.5. You are listening to Out of the Box. My name is Mia Hull. I've got the pleasure of sitting down with Tasman Keith today and walking through the story of his life and some of the songs that have defined the big moments. That was one of them. And you yourself are a musician, Tasman. Mm. I kind of want to paint a picture of what your life looked like when your first EP, Mission Famous, came out. Mm. Where were you living at the time? I was in uni accommodation in Ultimo in Waddle Lane. 
So you um, gave uni a second go? Yeah, I, I went back after working in Barrowville. Um, and to be to be honest, I used university as a way to get back into the city of like, okay, accommodation. Of course, do I have to pay for it, but it's not as expensive as rent. Or I, I don't have to go and live with, you know, my auntie who has 10 other people in the crib. Um, so I was living there. I was working very hard, but I wasn't necessarily taking care of myself the way that I should have been. Um, and I was being quite ignorant to like, if I just work hard, that's enough. You know what I mean? So I was in a, I was in a, I was in a very interesting spot. Um, but also I was, I was very excited and I was very, I guess, starry eyed and like first EP and really pushing and, and felt like it was the time where I started to get recognition. So what does it mean to be study? Cause you were studying music, weren't you? Yeah. Music and sound design. Music and sound design. So what does it mean to be studying those things and then also be an emerging artist? Wouldn't you feel almost like... You don't need to be in those classes. Like, yeah, well, it was, coming out. it was funny because, like, my brother was in the same course and I think he started a year after me and then the next year they asked me to speak at the lecture um, as, like, as Tasman Keith. Um, and your brother was in the lecture. Yeah, and this dude <gasps> sat right up the front and just stared at me the whole time. <laughs> I was like, bro. Um, but, <laughs> but, yeah, it was, it was a weird balance. It was like, I think that's why I did kind of skip a little bit because I was like, I'm doing this and I need to put energy into this. And I feel like looking back now, I definitely could have, you know, done both. Um, But I think my mind was so set on what I wanted to do as an artist. So I kind of ignored what that could do to help me as an artist. But I also know that like the things I decided to do instead is what led me to where I'm at. Mission Famous kind of looks back at your early life with a lot Mm -hmm. of pride. When you talk about this drive that you had to make that EP, is it the drive to be a musician or is it the drive to tell that story or is it both? Um, I think first of all, it just came from like wanting to make an EP. And then I had a conversation with uh, my producer at the time, James Mangohig, and I showed him some of the cousin's songs from like early days and even some of the uncle's songs. And he was like, you know, where where did this go? Did it do anything? And I was like, nah, I was just famous on the mission. I was like, mission famous. And then that moment was like, ah, okay, that's pretty hard. And then like we made, so we made the song Mission Famous first. And then as we continued to make the EP, we just kind of locked in on that narrative. And I think the natural progression was just like me then thinking, okay, yeah, I want to make a first EP, but what do I want to do musically? And in the industry that kind of like, regardless of where it goes, people can look back at the first project and see exactly where I come from and that was the intention. I think that's really amazing to point forward in that way and think about laying a foundation for your own career and it was and is a really amazing EP. I think as an emerging artist it really launched you into all of our hearts and minds. We certainly loved it here at FBI and putting out a debut EP is exciting. It's a huge achievement to get that out into the world but I guess I'm wondering if when you think about that time in your life, you think about the excitement or if you have positive associations with that. Yeah. Um, so what, what happened around that EP was we we went back to Barrowville the day of the EP release um, and we had a, a show in, like a show slash party in the back <laughs> of mom's, in the back of mom's yard. Um, and we got, you know, a car trailer for the stage, got a PA system, um, invited all the fam to celebrate this moment. Um, and my uncle was there, um, my great uncle, 
Uncle Job. And, you know, I I saw him that day as well downtown, said hello to him, had a yarn with him. Um, unfortunately, in that night, I think I only saw him really briefly. Um, I didn't really get to see him that much because I was so in, like, show mode um, and just talking to everybody else as well. We we finished the night. It's great. Of course, there was a couple of fights that almost happened, so I had to, you know, get on the microphone and be like, look, we're here for a bigger reason, all that bullshit, leave it out the door, and everybody respected that, which is coming from the young cousin, you know what I mean, mm. and what we're there to celebrate. So they're like, uh, yep, okay. Um, anyway, night finishes, wake up. We had a plan to shoot the Mission Famous video on Barrival Golf Course. Um, me and my cousin Marbuck jump in the car, and we're driving up Barrel Mission, and I get pulled up um, by by another cousin, and he's like, oh, did you hear? And I was like, nah, like, what happened? And he's like, Uncle Joby just passed away last night. Um, I kind of was, you know, uh, I've always had a tendency to kind of be quite, how would I put it? I guess I, guess I put it to the side um, and deal with it when I feel like I sh- need to deal with it. Um, so I'm quite good at, like, compartmentalizing death. Um, and so naturally I was sitting to my cousin, I was like, you know, do I tell my brother or, cause he's on set waiting. Um, I'm like, do I tell my brother or do I just get the job done and then tell him after? And I, you know, we just, we spoke and I agreed with my cousin that like, nah, tell your brother. Got to the golf course, uh, broke the news to him. And he's somebody that feels things in real time. Um, and he broke down, started crying. And, you know, I had to spend a moment with him and I just said to him, I was like, look, let's shoot this video. Let's get this done for him and for us. And then let's go home and deal with it. So we're shooting the video with all this in our mind. Um, you know, halfway through, dad comes up the golf course and he's yelling out to us because he doesn't know if we know yet. Um, so we go and see him and he's like, did you hear him? We're like, yeah, yeah. Had a moment with dad and he said the same thing. He's like, get this done. He's like, you know, do it for the reason you're doing it and then come home and, and we'll sort it. Um, went home. Spent that time with mum, dad, and, and Uncle Joe actually left his uh, hat on the coffee table, which he always did. And so, like, when I got back, it was just the realisation of, like, damn, like, he ain't here, you know what I mean? And then we started talking, and it's like, mum's like, he also gave you your name, remember? And then all these things that, you know, are crucial to my life, which he's a big part of, um, I had to deal with. I had to go, had to come back to Sydney the day after, or two days after, to continue the Mission Famous tour, and I think... Uh, we got to the Newcastle show the following weekend. Um, we did the Newcastle show, and the next day I had to drive up to Barrow because it was the day of the viewing. Um, drove to the viewing, pulled up, went inside, said, you know, say goodbye to him and all that. And my, my uncle, my other uncle, he's like, could you, he's like, do you have the Mission Famous EP? The hard copies here. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm on, you know, they're in the car. Um, and he's like, could you leave one at his feet because all the nephews are leaving something at his feet in the coffin that kind of like um means a lot to them and will mean a lot to him so there were some cousins that left like a grand final trophy or like um whatever it may be and i left my my ep um you know gave him a kiss on the forehead said goodbye to him uh walked out and then the same uncle was like um do you mind being a poor bearer tomorrow and i was like of course not like anything um and he's like you know when you bring him into the cemetery, if it's okay with you, we're gonna play your song, My Plopolis. And of course, I was like, yeah, because that was the last song he heard. It was the last song he heard. Last song he heard. Last thing he heard, he saw me perform that song. 
um, last song you heard, and that song is about, you know, once passing and your spirit living forever in community. And so, like, a week later, I'm now, you know, um, carrying my uncle on my shoulders to this song and watching the coffin go down in the grave to this song. Um, and that whole, once that happened and I kind of had a minute to reflect and live through it, I was like, regardless of what this EP does now, the job is done. Like, the fact that, you know, because there were some things in in the talks where that EP wasn't supposed to come out until four months later, but I pushed for certain things. And so it was all like the timing of it and what it did and what it was able to provide me and my family and my uncles and everybody in that time. Like a week after, I was already so detached from the success of it because for me, it was already successful in family and community and meant a lot more. What does it mean to have your EP play such a huge role in such a personal family event and be so cathartic in a funeral and then have to take that to stages and perform it to strangers. What is that like? For me, it's great because it's like a celebration of it. You know what I mean? It's a celebration of life and a celebration of of what I've, what I've, what I've done with that and what I did with that. And of course, it's always a reminder when I perform it. But like, I I think because of the way I've, I've grown up and and uncles like Uncle Job, I am able to see the importance in these things and and be able to not necessarily push it to the side anymore, but deal with it and express how I've dealt with it. Um, and so every time I perform that song, it's like there's some white kids in the crowd that sing a mission famous and they've never been to a mission in their life. So I'm like, I, I'm not ignorant to what this song has done now for the perception of a mission, you know what I mean? Um, but of course, there's still that underlying thing. But I think it all just equates to what that song means to me, uh, regardless of performing it or not performing it. You haven't released a body of work since. Mm-hmm. You've got your album coming up soon, which we will talk about later in the show. And I do want to talk about maybe what it means to release an album that doesn't have such a huge part of your family life. But mm. first, you've chosen a song by Tupac. Yep. Why did you pick this one? Because uh, it reminds me of, you know, my my cousins and home. And around, you know, post-Mission Famous, I remember just playing a bunch of, of Park and, and reminiscing on hearing my cousins playing that and just like feeling at home through that music. This is Tupac on FBI Radio 94.5. The song is called Life Goes On. How many brothers fell victim to the streets? Rest in peace, young nigga. There's a heaven for a cheat. Be a lie if I told you that I never thought of death. My nigga, we the last ones left. But life goes on. How many brothers fell victim to the streets? Rest in peace, young nigga. There's a heaven for a cheat. Be a lie if I told you that I never thought of death. My nigga, be the last ones left. And life goes on. Yeah, nigga, I got the word as hell. You blue trial and the judge gave you 25 with an L. Life goes on. It was Tupac on FBI Radio 94.5. The chooser of that song was Tasman Keith, my guest on Out of the Box today. And just before that song, we talked about the release of your first EP, Mission mm-hmm. Famous. I just want to follow the chronology of that because shortly after that event and, you know, mm-hmm. the family tragedy that followed... The pandemic started. Yeah. I mean, even that though, like post, I think just post pandemic, it was the success of Billy Bad again. And mm. then we had, you know, the the evenings EP with Stevie. And I think after Misha Famous, I just, 
engulfed myself with work. Um, but yeah, pandemic came along and it kind of gave me a minute to, I guess, get back to writing as prolifically as I was pre-Mission Famous. Mm. Um, and and just as everybody, spent some time with myself. The mm. EP that you were saying... I know I'm putting words in your mouth, but the way you kind of described it was you were so determined to become an artist and you really mm. put everything into making this EP. Now that that's out of the way and you've got a pandemic and all of this time and space to sit down and think critically about the kind of music that you're making, mm. how did that impact your music making and how did your rapping change shape? It's funny because the 2020 uh, lockdown, it, it wasn't at that point yet. It was still just like, you know what, I'm going to just write and get yeah. back to the fun of it. But then when we got to, you know, the next lockdown, that was when I started to think critically. Um, but the whole the whole time that I was in lockdown 2020, I was either in Barrowville writing again with a bunch of cousins around me that weren't writing with me, but they just wanted to, like, be in the room. Um, and so I think I mainly just got back to that. Mm. 2020 also saw you do a lot of collaborations, Tasman. Mm-hmm. Can you walk me through some of those? 2020. Um, yeah, so we had uh, No Country with Koya James, which is a great song about uh, not being able to be, as a Gumbangi man, not being able to be initiated, therefore I could never traditionally become a man. Um, the one that dropped on the exact same day um, is the Minato collaboration with Jessica Malboy, and which is a moment that I'm like, you know, I wasn't expecting. I think I've always seen you know, the highest of heights in my career, but I think that was just so random that I couldn't have seen it <laughs> happening. Um, like, I'm sitting, I'm now sitting in a studio with Peter Garrett, awkwardly nodding his head while I rap my verse. Um, so it was, it was quite surreal. Um, but the space I had before having to get into those sessions late 2020 is what allowed me to kind of be prepared for it. How do you make sense of such a quick coming up? You were at uni studying music and sound design your Mm -hmm. first ep comes out it's successful and you know within a year or two you're rapping on a midnight oil song Mm. how do you make sense of that i don't think i have to be honest (laughs) i don't think i've sat down and like hearing you say that is the first time like damn yeah Yeah. right um because in even in the studio when i got in i was like this is wild but also it's time to work and you know, I think when I went in there, they had the song, I was finished. Um, and I just said to them, I was like, could you create a 16 bar verse for me? Um, and I'll write it right now. And they left me for half an hour at the desk and I finished the verse and recorded it. And I think, thankfully, because I didn't try to process it or get too caught up in that thought, then I was like, let me try the verse. But looking back at it now, it's like, still wild to be the only ever rap feature on a Minato record. I didn't know that. I'm, I don't know that either. But <laughs> I'm, I'm just, I'm, I suppose so. Like, I, I don't think they've ever had it's a rap fact. It's, it's fact. It's fact. <laughs> you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. I do wonder if it kind of points back to growing up with your dad as an MC and, you know, rapping at the powerhouse at age 10 and almost being conditioned to be in that space all the time. Yeah, 100%. And, like, it was... It was something that I kind of like have always, I guess, worked towards just like being able to craft and having that moment of obviously stems back to like, 
you know, the work I did at Powerhouse or the work I did with, with my dad. Tasman, you've chosen a song by Lil Wayne featuring Corey Guns. Mm-hmm. Why'd you pick this one? Because uh, in lockdown of 2020, I was with my cousin Marbuck a lot. And this is the one cousin that when we were 14 would sit on my roof in Barrowville and just like rinse Lil Wayne songs, mixtape songs, J. Cole songs. Um, so I chose this, but I also forgot to mention in 2020, the Jimmy Nice collaboration as well. Um, so that was another joint for me that was like, you know, he's somebody in rap in Australia, especially Sydney, that I'm like, damn, that's a great lyricist. Um, and so to be able to kind of, to tie that into Lil Wayne, mm. I'm just going to say they're both great lyricists. <laughs> and now you're about to hear Six Foot Seven Foot. This is Six Foot Seven Foot on FBI Radio 94.5 and it comes with a language warning. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI Radio 94.5. I'm Mia Hull. I'm joined by rapper Tasman Keith, the chooser of that song. It was Lil Wayne and Corey Gunn's Six Foot, Seven Foot. Tasman, you're a musician in your own right, and mm-hmm. we are about to catch new music from you. Tell me about your forthcoming album. Um, basically, it was... Damn, it, it probably started early 2021. I went to a writing trip with uh, Kwame, Phil Fresh, uh, Matt Fiovanti, Nikos, my brother, and we all just like locked in for the first time together. Um, and out of that session came one, the joint with Kwame. Um, and outside of that came a friendship with him that then allowed us to continue creating. Um, you know, we got to July in 2021, and I knew I wanted to create an album. Uh, and we locked in at, it's funny, it was supposed to be at Blue Mountains, but the the lockdown happened again. Um, thankfully, random as, but Alex Yashinot provided me with her studio. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> um, had I did, you had much to do with Alex Yeah, I, I did eight shows with her at Lazy Bones in like seven nights, and it was like, the shows were great. Like, I cannot stress that the, I was so over that venue in that seven days. So I'm like, I'm not going back there until 10 years later when it's an intimate Tasman Keith show and reliving all of that <laughs> shit again. Um, but inside of that, Alex, it, she's a she's a great person. Um, and, you know, I was able to lock in at the space that was provided. And we wrote three of the songs on the album in one session. Um, and then, you know, lockdown happened and I got a phone call from Matt and he was like, bro, why don't you just stay locked in at Alex's spot and I was like true he's like you've already set the vibe so we locked in for six days I think we did Monday to Saturday um and I want to say that 11 of the joints from the album 10 or 11 were made in that six days and we really just kind of the intent was like for me was to create an album that I wanted it to be a sonic representation in a sense of like euphoria and also being like the way I felt at a funeral mm. it was like a, it, was a, it was a balance I wanted to get and how I got into that mindset was during the oils tour earlier in 2021 was like I'd have nights by myself in the hotel room and there was all these things that I didn't 
address. Um, you know, I lost a cousin in 2020 um, from a heart attack and he was only 27. And it's somebody that was really crucial to uh, my rap career. Um, and so naturally having time alone and sitting with my thoughts, all of these things came up. Um, I was able to kind of see the stuff that I had to deal with and try to get on the road to dealing with it. Um, and with those hard nights, like those nights where I'd just be honestly in the hotel room by myself crying. Um, with that then came clarity of like, okay, I want the album to be this. Um, and as soon as I had that, I started to ask myself like, okay, what don't I have? And I was very honest in the thought of like, okay, I need some, I need some big choruses. I need some songs that, you know, can go on the radio or that aren't so, I guess, deep in lyricism and thought. There's also, there's always the underlying thing, but I wanted to simplify it a bit for the listener. So every day in that six days in July, we would meet in the room in the morning and remind ourselves of like what the intention was and just create, we'll just be like, sweet, what are we feeling like making today? Every song, most of the songs that were made in the album were made in the one day and we're just like, okay, moving on, moving on. Got to the following week, was supposed to go to my engineers and re-record everything, retrack everything. And we went to do it and I was like, nah, it isn't the same feeling, like everything's done. So we were able to save the vocals because they weren't recorded the best, but we were able to save them and make them sound amazing. Um, and so it was really just all this time that I had either to myself, um, processing some things and, and really figuring out like what I want to say, who I want to be, how I want to say it, or being with other creatives and getting the help in like creating this, this piece of work. Since 12 o'clock today, we've walked through the story of your life mm -hmm. and when you talk about it, it almost feels like you've had the highest highs and the lowest lows mm. at the exact same time. Mm. And it sounds like the album looks at that. Yeah, it's like, it's the journey. Um, for me, it's always been the middle ground of like, you know, the highest of highs being like, I released my debut EP. Not even 16 hours later, I find out the the uncle that named me passes away. Mm. I'm performing in Canberra. Um, and five minutes before getting on stage with, with Briggs and Nookie, I get a phone call from another uncle no, my auntie, sorry. And she's like, hey, your Uncle Doss just passed away. And everybody in the room's like, you don't have to perform. And I'm like, nah, i got to perform. And it's just always been this constant thing of like, highs of highs, lows of lows. And so I think, you know, what I want to do with the album is just treading this middle ground and, and walking it correctly and not getting too invested in, in either emotion. And that album will be out on 8th of July. Yep. Do we have a tour or anything on the way? We do, but I cannot speak about that just yet. <laughs> we'll watch this space. <laughs> well, we have a show early be tomorrow night, so yeah, Smacks. Yep. Yeah, tell me about Smacks Fest. Um, I'm excited. Uh, you know, to get back to a room like Oxford Arts Factory and mm. and see the other acts that are playing there, and also you know be given the the opportunity to headline it is 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 amazing, and I can't wait to to play a lot of the album songs and keep and keep, you know, showing people before the record comes out. Word on the street is it's going to be the hottest event of the year. It is, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not even the word on the street, it's just it's just a fact. It's just... 
<laughs> but yes, the event is FBI Smacks Fest happening tomorrow, Friday, June 10. It's a full Oxford Art Factory takeover. Tasman Keith is headlining. The lineup is packed with local talent. Uh, tickets are $40 for that one. They are cheaper if you're an FBI Radio supporter, so become a supporter if you can. Head to fbiradio.com forward slash festival for all of the information and to buy tickets. People are saying it's going to go off. Um, it will. <laughs> and to give you a taste of what is to come, we are about to jump into a Tasman Keith song. But first, I just want to say thank you so much for sitting down with me. It's been so nice to walk through your life like this, Tasman. Of course. Thank you for having me. It's been a trip to just reflect on some things that I don't think I've necessarily reflected on just yet. What song would you like to end on? Love Too Soon by Tasman Keith, which is a great record by a rapper that went pop. it's love too soon by tasman keith my guest on out of the box today and he does have that album coming out july 8 a color undone but if you do want to hear from tasman in the meantime you can head along to fbi smacks fest and see him perform tomorrow head to fbiradio.com forward slash festival for tickets and more info You can also hear more from Tasman by listening back to this episode. It'll be on the programs page on fbiradio.com and on the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout out to producer Mary for helping research this episode. And do stay tuned. Lunch is right around the corner. FBI. (laughs) 